Welcome again to Fat-Free Film. I'm your host, Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez-Dawson, and we have the pleasure of speaking with Phil Hall today. Phil Hall is a writer, and he's written a book called Independent Film Distribution, How to Make a Successful End Run Around the Big Guys. He has a, a, a plethora of, of credits that are listed at the back of his book, but ultimately I think um, Phil is very uh, well-versed in independent film and the history of independent film, which was one of the very fascinating sections for me about his book, um, stuff that I really knew nothing about and, and was very interested to learn about. So we really appreciate you coming on to speak with us today, Phil. Well, thank you for having me. You know, it's uh, we're doing we're doing this across the Skype again. So, um, Phil, if we happen to cut out, uh, we'll just call you right back. Okay, I'll be here okay. for you. Okay, great. Can you tell me, Phil, how you got involved in the independent film industry? Well, my beginning in independent film was as a writer, um, reviewing films, doing essays on them. Uh, I joined the staff of Film Threat, the online magazine, in the year 2000. Before that, I was reviewing films for Wired magazine. Uh, concurrent to that, I was also doing uh, publicity for independent film releases in New York City, uh, doing PR for film festivals and also for video and DVD releases. Uh, the book Independent Film Distribution came about because I realized that a great many filmmakers did not know how to get their films into release. Uh, over at Film Threat, we pay a lot of attention to films that are not in theatrical release, films that are on the festival circuit, uh, films that go directly to video, films uh, that are playing online. And I realized there's a lot of good films out there, but uh, why aren't they in theaters? And Speaking to the filmmakers, I realized that a great many of them weren't aware of the ins and outs of the film distribution side of the business. They knew how to make a film, but they didn't know how to market the film. So I see the book as bridging the gap between the completion of the film and what would be the logical next step, getting it to an audience. And I think you point out in the book that you feel that um, it's not necessary, uh, necessarily a qualitative issue that distinguishes which film uh, gets a theatrical release or gets a distributor. And I think that's, that's very interesting because most of us assume, well, if my film is good enough, someone will find it. Uh, but you're suggesting that there's a lot of politics involved. Well, let's face it. How many times have you gone to a movie theater and paid eight, nine, ten dollars to see a film and you say, I paid for this. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of junk out there. But there's also a lot of good films that aren't being uh, distributed. And it's really not a question of quality. Granted, there are a lot of lousy movies that never make, uh, make it to the theater and probably all for the better. But from my estimation, having been on the reviewing side of this aspect of the film world, I would say at least 60 to 70 percent of the films I see are actually very good and should be in relief, and they are not, uh, simply because, for a variety of reasons, actually, uh, either the filmmaker wasn't aware of how to sell the film or market the film, or distributors may have incorrectly assumed the film wasn't commercial enough, and that's a rather unfortunate excuse, which gets bandied about too many times. I'm aware of a lot of films that were shown to distributors, and the distributors passed on them because they felt, yes, it's a good film, but we don't think we can make our money back on it. And uh, that's a bit of a cheat, actually, because 
any distributor worth his weight can make a profit on a film. It's all about marketing and selling and promoting a film and connecting it with the audience. When you say um, you're going to tell us how to make a successful end run around the big guys, could you could you um, elaborate on that? How can we do such a thing? And who are the big guys? Well, well I, I, I assume they're the studios. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the studios are the big guys, and the major independent distributors are the big guys as well. Uh, but there are a lot of other potential allies in the field, uh, boutique distributors, uh, festivals that are open to uh, smaller films and can be used to uh, leverage further connections. And also the filmmaker himself. A great many filmmakers are self-distributing their works uh, theatrically and on DVD. Uh, major filmmakers, too, of the uh, type of Hal Hartley or Arthur Dong, the Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker, or Bill Plimpton, they've self-distributed films successfully. And there are also other channels that filmmakers may not be aware of, such as uh, non-theatrical releasing, video on demand. So I basically am trying to uh, empower the filmmaker to uh, go to their fullest. Don't just think, oh, well, if I don't make it to Miramax, and that's the end of the world. No, it's not. And that's not even the right direction to be going in. Uh, many first-time filmmakers, particularly those who are not connected to the New York or Los Angeles indie scenes, are lost, and they don't realize that there is a way to get their film seen, and that's the uh, a very long answer to your question. I think also one of the things you mention in the book is how, uh, for most American independent filmmakers, Sundance is the be-all and end-all, but when you break down the statistics on it, um, even if you do manage to be one of the 120 features that's picked out of six, 7,000, um, the chances of getting picked up there are, are actually less likely than, say, if you were a stellar entry at a smaller festival because there's just only so many acquisitions that are going to take place in that market. Is that correct? Well, Sundance has evolved uh, dramatically over the years. Uh, it wasn't really intended to be a meat market for independent filmmakers seeking uh, distribution. It came that way after Robert Redford and his crew uh, took over the festival in the early 80s. It had been around since the late 70s. It didn't really get much attention. But it really wasn't until 1989 when Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotapes was picked up by Miramax that all of a sudden people thought, wow, Sundance is a place for me to sell my movie. Today, Sundance, though, is very, very different from what Steven Soderbergh uh, experienced. Uh, we're actually taping this interview on the day that the, uh, the Sundance lineup had been announced, and there are a great many uh, major films that are in competition starring A-list performers, which most people wouldn't think of as being traditional independent films, and that's because they're not. Sundance is in the business of, uh, of business, like any uh, festival, they are there to make money, and they want to bring as many people in as possible, so they're going to get films which they view as being commercially relevant and attracting audiences. There are a lot of festivals out there for filmmakers who can get picked up. Uh, it doesn't have to be Sundance. Uh, in the book, I mention the Atlanta International Film Festival, which most people view as a second-tier festival. 
And I interviewed Liz Garbus, who's an Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker. She was showing her feature, Girlhood, there a couple of years ago, and it was picked up for release based on the screening because a member of the executive team from Wellspring was on one of the seminar panels there, saw the film, and decided to acquire it, which was funny because the film had already been booked by Liz herself at uh, New York's Quad Cinema as a self-release, and then Wellspring came in and took over uh, for national theatrical distribution for the movie. Most people wouldn't think of the Atlanta International Film Festival as a place for a pickup. Uh, even more esoteric is the New Haven Underground Film Festival in Connecticut. Uh, a very interesting statistic about that festival. It's been around for about five years, and all of the feature films that have won the Best Picture Award at the festival wound up with distribution deals. And What do uh, you attribute that to? I attribute to the fact that the filmmakers, well, one, got lucky. Luck plays a, a good part in, in the game. But also, two, they were smart enough to uh, get into festivals where they felt the films would be appreciated and where there would be an audience that would be uh, receptive to what they're showing. And they're smaller festivals than Sundance, so there's a greater chance to shine. Also a greater chance to um, leverage the festival's uh, media influence if you're in a uh, major market, media market like Atlanta or uh, New Haven, which actually covers the whole state, both New Haven and Hartford uh, covered the festival. The films that are playing there can get uh, a lot more attention and the filmmakers who have their films in competition are able to leverage the media coverage from that then go on to the proverbial bigger and better. Now, do you think that Chris Gore's book about the film festival survival guide, I think it's called, is that the ultimate tome on festivals? And and is that what all independent filmmakers should refer to when deciding oh, yeah. what? Yeah. So first of all, um, as a disclosure, Chris is the publisher of Film Threat, and I've been writing for him for six years. And I think Chris is one of the greatest people who have lived. So mm -hmm. Um, I have to get that out of the way. But yes, uh, Chris Gore's book, which is, I believe, in its third edition now, uh, The Ultimate Film Festival Guide, anyone who wants to um, know everything there is to know about the festival circuit should read that. What about Without a Box? Do you recommend that for uh, filmmakers who are trying to get their films um, seen in festivals? That, uh, I have... I honestly can't give you an answer because I don't know. Um, I've never tried it, and I don't know anyone who's actually tried it. I've read good things about it. But again, uh, Without a Box actually came around after my book was completed. So mm -hmm. one interesting thing about the, um, the distribution scene is constantly evolving. After the book was completed and while it was at the, uh, the publishers, I had discovered a couple of smaller distributors um, started up operations, uh, most notably a company called Cinema Epoch out of Los Angeles. So um, even though my book is brand new and just came into stores in November, uh, there is still some information that's, uh, that's coming out which didn't make this book. Uh, maybe it'll be in the second edition. Mm -hmm. But by all means, uh, for filmmakers who want to explore distribution, you have to keep up to date. You have to follow the industry news. And by industry news, I mean industry trades like Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Film Journal International, uh, IndieWire, Film Threat, Box Office Magazine. Uh, don't, don't read into the, the happy hype media. Um, 
follow the, the nuts and bolts media. It's not as glamorous, maybe not as interesting as, as reading about the stars, but if you want to be serious about uh, being in the film industry as a player, you have to keep abreast of that. Do you think that films that have a niche market uh, have a better survival rate now with all these distri- distribution methods that are available? I mean, um, yes. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, I think so. Uh, I think documentaries um, seem to be getting a lot more play today than they had in the past. Uh, documentaries are also wonderful for exploring the non-theatrical channels, which I, I speak about in the book. Uh, also for sales to television, both public television and cable television. Uh, horror and science fiction always had a, an audience and always will, uh, particularly for the direct-to-video market. If you're doing a low-budget horror film, uh, let's be frank, there's a good chance that it won't get into the actual release, but there's a very good chance that a distributor of uh, the ilk of, say, SRS Cinema or um, Alpha Video might pick it up for release. Uh, Other niche films, it's hard to say because um, a lot of independent comedies don't get picked up because I think that's maybe the weakest link in the indie scene um, because a lot of filmmakers either lack the budget to make a decent comedy or they just, quite frankly, don't know how to write a funny script or get good comic actors for it. <laughs> They're uh, just not films, funny. So it's hit and miss. It depends on what you're presenting. Uh, I've seen a lot of very touching, dramatic films, which unfortunately fall into what I mentioned earlier, the whole not commercial aspect. Uh, the film has to be very good, of course, to get attention, but also has to be sold properly. And a lot of times it would help to go to the, the distributor to show that the film is appreciated, um, whether it means getting reviews from festival screenings, uh, testing it at micro cinemas, which is something that's mentioned in the book as well, or even putting out a game plan showing how the film could be released, who the target market is, uh, the willingness of the filmmaker to promote the film. And that's something also uh, a lot of the audience may not be aware of. There are some filmmakers out there who, quite frankly, are rather lazy when it comes to promoting the film, they, they feel, well, I made the film and now let somebody else promote it. And you'd be surprised how many filmmakers really blow a chance to get a good distribution deal because they're not actively promoting their work. You mentioned video on demand as a potential outlet for independent films. And I know that um, at, its very, at its inception, um, well, I guess Adam Films was more web uh, web. Um, distribution, but it really didn't seem like it was particularly uh, lucrative for filmmakers to do. Has that changed? Not yet, uh, but there's the potential in 2007 for that. Most video on demand today uh, to benefit the independent filmmaker is internet-based. There are sites like uh, VOD.com, which allows filmmakers to have their films available for online viewing. Uh, There's a technology called IPTV, which stands for Internet Protocol Television, uh, which is starting to make headway in Europe and probably will make headway in the U.S. into 2007, probably more into 2008 and the years afterwards, which will enable uh, filmmakers, uh, particularly the uh, smaller distributors of independent films, to have their uh, titles available for VOD, 
distribution. I know of SRS Cinema, which is a company out of Syracuse, New York, that specializes in horror and science fiction film releases. Uh, already has agreements with three IPTV uh, services to make their films available, and these are niche films serving the horror and sci-fi market. Uh, as we stand today, VOD is still in its very, very early days. Uh, a lot of the online VOD sites are a mixed bag, everything from artistic indie films to triple X movies, which is not, not what this book is about. Mm-hmm. And uh, as it evolves, and it probably will in the coming year and for about two or three years afterwards, there is the potential that this could be a new outlet for uh, smaller distributors as well as self-distributing filmmakers. So, Phil, um, before we wrap this up, we'd like you to uh, perhaps give our audience uh, what we call Film Bites, which is basically advice uh, for the young filmmaker or the beginning filmmaker, um, and some words of wisdom from you. Okay. The most important advice I can give any filmmaker is don't give up and don't get discouraged. One of the least pleasant aspects of the film business is that you're going to encounter people who don't like your work, whether they are critics or festival programmers or distributors or wise guys sitting in the audience making uh, MST3K-type remarks to the screen while your movie is playing. Just brush it off. You will never be able to find people who love everything you do. You will never get... 100% unanimous praise for your work and that doesn't mean your work isn't deserving of praise. It just means that you're encountering people who don't share your vision and don't share your enthusiasm. Uh, Even great filmmakers like Orson Welles or Stanley Kubrick or Hitchcock got their share of bad reviews and uh, audience catcalls and whatnot and they persevered and, and they didn't let it stop them. Don't let it stop you. It's rough, particularly for new filmmakers trying to get their foot in the door. Nine times out of ten, they usually get their uh, their toes smashed in the process, but, but keep trying. And have faith in yourself and believe in yourself, because if you do believe in yourself, ultimately you're going to bring people around to you, and you're going to build an alliance with people in the business who can help you achieve your goals. And whatever you do, don't piss people off. Don't send nasty emails or letters or make rude phone calls to people who you feel are slighting you. Just let it be because you will get a reputation for being difficult or malcontent and that's not going to help at all. What you need to do is surround yourself with positive people and to have a positive attitude about yourself and your work. I don't know how far you will go with that, but you'll go a lot further if you're going to be angry at every perceived slight or perceived criticism of your work, because that's, as with the movie industry, as with life, uh, you can't please everyone, so just believe in yourself and keep going. Everything's going to work out well. Wow, that's really great advice. I appreciate that. Thank sure you so much for too. the positive energy. Because yeah. I, I do feel that sometimes it's like pushing that 
proverbial rock up the hill, and and it's it's great to um, support one another. This is a community that we're living in, and that's one of the great things about doing a podcast like this is a way to bring us all together and um, realize that we're not out there alone. We're not isolated. We do have each other to speak to about advice, to ask for help from, and um, and in your case, to get some very um, insightful thoughts on both distribution and the independent film world. Um, I highly recommend Phil Hall's book. Again, it's called Independent Film Distribution, How to Make a Successful End Run Around the Big Guys. Thank you so much, Phil, for putting up with the um, faulty Skype. (laughs) And, and Phil, one other thing, um, if you're still there, uh, I know we're on a rather tenuous connection, but do you have any filmmakers that you want to tout right now that are maybe up-and-coming filmmakers that you really appreciate their work? Uh, that puts me in a difficult situation. I hate to play favorites. Uh, uh-huh. But I'll tell you what, uh, for the listeners out there, go over to Film Threat, which is www.filmthreat.com, and we provide the spotlight on a great many talented young filmmakers who are up and coming. Uh, film Threat is one of the few online media sites that gives attention to undistributed films. Actually, many films that I've reviewed on Film Threat were able to get theatrical and DVD releases based on what I had to say about the film. So go over to Film Threat, look it over, and uh, maybe you could be the next unheralded filmmaker to get in the spotlight and have uh, the distributors calling you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you so much, Phil, for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me, and you can find my book in bookstores or online at Amazon or through my publisher, Michael Weesey Productions, at uh, www.mwp.com. Thanks again. Thank See you. See you later. Take care. Okay, that was Phil Hall, and uh, we had a rather tenuous connection with him. Uh, but, yeah, he has a lot of great advice for um, people out there and getting their film distributed. I just wanted to talk a little bit more uh, with my co-host here, Kamala, because uh, we've been gone for two weeks, and we, I just wanted to ex- explain where we were. Um, we were making a, a film, Kamala's first feature film. It's called A Single Woman. Uh, how was that experience for you, Kamala? Well, it was uh, pretty intense. <laughs> I don't think there's there's uh, any other way to describe uh, the kind of production that went on on a single woman, except to say I'm I'm very pleased uh, that it, that we executed it. I'm very pleased with the uh, results so far. I mean, I I'm going to be stepping into the editing room in about a week once my HD footage is down converted and logged and captured and I'm going to get going and start editing, but it really was um I mean, you were there. What do you it think? Was pretty it was pretty crazy. <laughs> you know, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, oh, it was a great time. I mean, we had just just about the best crew and cast on any film I've ever worked on. Um people really threw themselves into it. And I think partially because the subject matter uh, for a lot of us that were involved, I'd say the majority of the people involved, um, were very passionate about Jeanette Rankin, about her message of peace, about what she stood for, and about the relevance of her message in today's society and um, how we want to get that out there. So I think that made for a very unified kind of family feeling on the set. And then we just were all, 
you know, kind of goofy and silly and managed to have a really good time despite the fact that we worked our asses off. Yeah, and we also had a lot of people um, who worked on it who were who have been on our show. Uh, like we had Jesse, who was the AD. And, uh, You're right, Jesse, the AD from The Intervention. We had um, Gabriel Dennis, who was the first AC on The Intervention, and his um, assistant camera person, Dave Thomas, from Intervention. Jesse, um, or, um, Jeffrey McIntyre, who um, did the art direction, did a beautiful job. Production design was amazing. It was really incredible. Um, we built a set. It was a kitchen that would take place over uh, it would be in different periods throughout the last century and uh, we had all kinds of different props and furniture and stuff that we got and then we had a lot of uh, my family there I mean um, my cousin Jean Marie Simpson wrote the play A Single Woman which is brilliant and she also played Jeanette Rankin and she was brilliant I mean there's just really no other word for it and then um, her brother and my cousin Jeff Simpson came down from Arizona and played her brother in it. Um, we had some beautiful volunteers come out from Reno. John, uh, who helped with the art department, Van Eyck, is that how you pronounce it? And Julie, who helped with costumes and also played Carrie Chapman Cat. Um, just there was a lot of not to be hokey, but there was a lot of love floating around, and I think it really made everything go right. So I'm really thrilled. I mean, I made a feature film. I directed a feature film. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty darn cool. <laughs> we got that, that uh, out of the way. And uh, I also want to thank uh, all of our guests and, um, uh, you know, all the people that have emailed us, um, because I think it's been sort of an inspirational year. Um, interviewing all these people about filmmaking and it just gets us all really pumped up and here we are at the end of the year and Kamala's put a film in the can uh, one that she's directed so and we've put 50 episodes in the can here this will be episode 51 Um, so anyway so thanks out there to everybody for listening we're looking forward to um, another fat free year and uh, <laughs> unfortunately neither Joel nor I are fat free that's moment. right we're, we're getting all the fat that's that's drifting off of the podcast that's right so anyway so if you guys want to email us uh, email us at joel at fatfreefilm.com or camilla at fatfreefilm.com and uh, visit the website www.fatfreefilm.com and thank you so much for listening we really appreciate it see you next week Thank you.